Now, I personally have found a great comfort in Lent this year. I don't always, but, but I have this year. Often, when we think of Lent, we anticipate a season that's characterized by repentance and sorrow. Um, it can be a dangerous thing doing such serious self-reflection. Um, we can become discouraged. We can become discouraged if we don't do it in the right way. We start the season of penitence by marking ourselves with ashes on our foreheads and hearing the words, you are but dust, and to dust you shall return. We then march forward to the end of Lent, and that places us at the cross, another marker of death, where Jesus, God himself, dies for us. And yet this Lent has also been marked by bright and shining moments of life. Every Sunday in our gospel readings it has truly felt like a Resurrection Sunday to me. In our walk through the Gospel of John, we have seen awe-inspiring moments of life being proclaimed each week. In chapter 3, we listen to Jesus' talk with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. We learn that new life, the new birth, is necessary, and we receive it by God's Spirit. We learn that this new life transforms us, and that it's not something that we can earn, but something that we receive by faith as a gift. In chapter 4, we watched as Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman at the well. We saw as he offered her not ordinary water, but living water. He offered her the gift of life that dwells within us and satisfies that spiritual need that is in each and every one of us. In chapter 9 last week, we witnessed Jesus work a life-giving miracle of new creation, healing a man that was born blind. All throughout John's Gospel, there is something like a crescendo of life-giving miracles. They start out small, but then they grow and they grow and they grow. And today, in chapter 11, we see the last and greatest of these life-giving miracles. So I invite you all to turn in your Bibles with me as we take a closer look at this powerful moment near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now Jesus has retreated from Jerusalem. After healing the blind man, Jesus has drawn a little too much attention from the Pharisees in the city. They're riled up, they're angry, they're ready to arrest him and crucify him. So Jesus retreats, and at the end of chapter 8, we see that it says, Because they sought to arrest him, Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Jesus needed some time to lay low. His hour is coming, and if we remember, we know what that means, but it's not quite here yet. Well, unfortunately, that plan goes out the window once Jesus receives a message from his good friends, Martha and Mary. We remember these two women, if we know our Bible stories well, of Martha, the busybody in the kitchen, and Mary, her sister, who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens and learns. Well, Mary's brother Lazarus, who is a beloved friend of Jesus as well, has fallen ill, and it's beginning to look so serious that Mary seeks out Jesus to heal him. Unfortunately for Jesus and his disciples, this means that they must once again walk back towards danger. As we see in verse 18, Bethany was practically next door to Jerusalem. It was only two miles away, where the Pharisees were waiting and plotting. Now, we know Jesus can heal from a distance. That's not something unseen from him. We saw it before in Matthew 8, when he heals the centurion's servant. We know that his word is powerful enough that he doesn't physically have to be there to do a great work. And yet, after waiting two days, Jesus gets up and he tells his disciples, 
let us go to Judea again. Immediately, his disciples start protesting, and understandably so. They begin to remind him of what they had just narrowly escaped from. And Jesus answers them in his typical cryptic way, which is to say something slightly confusing. Um, But he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, for the light is not in him. Now back then, they didn't have the luxury of electricity. When the sun went down, your work was over. You packed up your things, you went inside, and whatever work was left to do would get done tomorrow. Jesus here in John's Gospel is at the metaphorical 11th hour, that moment before it's all too late and the story wraps up. It's almost time for him to be lifted up on the cross, but there's enough light in the day, enough time left before he's handed over to Pilate for him to work one last great miracle. That is why Jesus is not afraid to go back towards Jerusalem. He knows he'll be protected because the Father has sent him to go. But why does Jesus wait two whole days before going? He just heard that his good friend is dying, and his response is, to sit a while, to take a break before walking the two-day journey to Bethany. Now, this is confusing for me and difficult to read because I remember when I got the phone call from my stepmom telling me that my dad was coming home from the hospital and being put in hospice care. She told me that the doctors predicted that he would only have anywhere from three to nine weeks left. Now, me, myself, I already had plans to fly back home for a wedding in a month. And I figured, for a moment, I pondered the idea of not flying home early. I'll just see him then. I'm glad I didn't. Instead, I flew out the next day, and just four days later, my dad passed. Had I waited, I would have missed any chance to say goodbye. But in this story today, Jesus' waiting is intentional. It's intentional for a number of reasons, the most important of which is that Jesus actually wants to arrive late. He wants Lazarus to already be dead by the time he gets to Bethany. He tells his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. When we read this next to verse 4, where Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, we begin to hear an echo of the story of the blind man. Remember that Jesus said that his blindness was not the result of his sin, but so that God may be glorified. Jesus wants to arrive late so that he can raise Lazarus from the dead. He wants to arrive late so that he can work an even greater miracle. Because he knows that this will implant a greater faith in his disciples. We read that Jesus arrived when Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Now, in Jewish culture, there are several practices and beliefs about the burial of a person after they've passed. Some believe that for three days after someone died, their soul would hover over the body, waiting for an opportunity to to join back in. But upon the fourth day, seeing that the body would start to decay, the soul would then move on. During this whole time, there would be public and private mourning the third day of which was the most climactic. It was the most tense and raw and heartbreaking. So Jesus purposely arrives on the fourth day because at this point, in the eyes of all the people, 
any hope for Lazarus has been completely lost. The soul has moved on, the mourning is drawing to a close, and it seems that death has claimed its victory over Lazarus for good. This makes it all the more heartbreaking to hear the words of Martha and Mary when they say, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Here is where we begin to find our, our Lenten life moment of the week. Martha is convinced that Lazarus is lost, but she still proclaims a faith in Jesus and his power. Jesus assures her that Lazarus will rise to life again. Now Martha's a faithful Jew. She knows her stuff. When she hears these words from Jesus, she's thinking about the Jewish belief in the resurrection at the end of time. It's natural that her mind would go there. But Jesus makes it clear to her that he is not speaking about some far-off, distant, unseeable resurrection. He's talking about new life that is here and now. The Jewish hope of resurrection is standing right in front of her. As he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. As he told Nicodemus, this life is found in Christ and it is by faith that we receive it. And just as he told the woman at the well, this life is an eternal life. In verse 25, he says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The life Jesus came to give us is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection. It is his life that he gives to us. Now once Martha is convinced, she sends for Mary, and Mary runs out to Jesus, and in her great sorrow and misery, she falls at his feet and repeats the words of her sister, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here, I think, is when we see one of the most profound glimpses into the mind and heart of our God. Jesus displays for us here a powerful and beautiful image of God's holy love for his people. Jesus, witnessing the grief and sorrow of Mary and of all those around her, weeps for Lazarus. This is no small thing. Verse 35 is commonly known as the shortest verse in the Bible. It's just two words, Jesus wept. And yet these two small words speak volumes of who God is. Here in this story, we see the God of creation, the author of life, the one who knows all and is sovereign over everything, sheds tears for the death of one person made in his image. These are not the crocodile tears of the professional mourners in Jewish society that people would hire to attend funerals and act sad. These are genuine tears of a God who so deeply loves his people. We can be confident that God is not blind or apathetic to our sorrow and suffering. Just as Jesus is one with us in our humanity, he is also one with us in our sorrow and in our pain. He holds it in his very heart. In verse 33, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, usually in Scripture, in the Gospels, when we see Jesus experiencing strong emotions, oftentimes it's compassion. When he feeds the 5,000, he looks upon the crowds, and his heart is moved, and he feels compassion towards them. Here, however, Jesus, standing among this crowd of heartbroken people, Jesus is not giving us an image of mere compassion. The Greek word here for deeply moved in verses 33 and 38 
is a word that is often used to describe outward expressions of anger. When talking about animals, it's like a horse snorting in contempt and protest. Yes, Jesus is saddened by the loss of his friend, but even more so, he's enraged. He sees in front of him the awful and terrible effects of sin and death on the world, and immediately he asks where Lazarus' tomb is. Jesus walks to the tomb with a resolute determination, approaching the stone door like a champion approaching the Colosseum gate, ready to do battle with his enemy. John Calvin once wrote that death wielded a violent tyranny, and now Jesus, with tear-soaked cheeks, is stepping up to overthrow him. Meanwhile, everyone around him is watching intently. It's kind of like one of those old Western films where the outlaw and the hero meet in the town square at high noon, ready to duel. And everyone watches from the windows, waiting to see what will happen. They say in verse 37, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Now at first, this sounds like disbelief. It sounds like they're not really sure who this is. But I don't think that's what's happening here. See, these Jewish people have already witnessed one impossible miracle in the healing of the blind man. What I think is happening is that their questioning is actually that they're curious. They're wondering, is there any limit to this man who calls himself the Son of God? In this showdown between the Son of God and the powers of sin and death, Jesus calls out with the very voice that brought forth creation, Lazarus, come out. And out of the tomb, with air in his lungs and a beating heart in his chest, Lazarus walks out of the grave. Jesus greets his old friend and tells the people to unbind him from the cloths of the grave and let him go. In a mighty work of new creation, one that has never been seen by these people, Jesus has loosened the bonds of death from Lazarus. Death and decay were overcome in front of all the people. But friends, this is only the beginning. Jesus' miracle here at the tomb of his friend is just a foretaste. It is just an early anticipation of what is to come on Easter Sunday. With the same resolute determination, Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem. With the same determination, he is going to walk towards the cross. The Jews who saw Lazarus rise will tell the Pharisees, and Jesus' death will be put into motion. At Lazarus' tomb, death's bonds were loosened, but at Calvary, the chains will be broken entirely. Death and sin will truly be defeated. This is the gospel message. God's holy love stretches from the beginning to the end of Scripture. The pain and sorrow that started in the Garden of Eden was always deep in the heart of God. God's love is a holy love. He always knew that sin and death must be dealt with. He always knew that injustice must be punished and things that are wrong must be put right. But it was his love for us that took the shape of a cross. God and his perfect son, Jesus, took all the penalty for our sin in our place so that we could be reconciled to him. And Jesus' sacrificial death was not just some logical or theological necessity. It wasn't just a fact that had to happen. It was the holy love of God for us that brought him there, and nothing less. And it is there that new life is freely given to each and every one of us who calls on the name of Jesus.
Friends, how are we living in light of this holy love? In this season of Lent, are we taking our sins seriously? Are we taking an honest look at ourselves and asking, how goes it with your soul? Are we living each day the new life, transformed by the Holy Spirit in the mercy and grace of God? Are we, like the disciples, taking up our cross to follow Jesus? As Thomas says in verse 16, let us also go so that we may die with him. For if we do, we will die with Christ. But like Lazarus, we will rise to the new life eternal. It is the gift that Jesus came to give us, and, has, and as he has been giving throughout all of our Lenten gospel messages. But we have to accept it. Like the missionary Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If we give our lives to Christ, he will give us back nothing less than his own life, the everlasting life. Let us go forth this morning with the joy, knowing that God does not leave us in our graves, but in his holy love, he calls us out into the light of new life. Amen. In penitence and faith, let us make our prayer to the Father and ask for his mercy and grace. For your holy people, that they may triumph over evil and grow in grace. Lifting up to you our leadership, praying for our Archbishop Foley, Mark, our Bishop. We pray this week for Grace Anglican Church in Circleville. Ron Feister and the Mission Council there. We pray also for the Anglican province of the Indian Ocean for Archbishop James Wong. And as always, we lift up to you our brother Bishop Juan Zumbas and the people of the Diocese of Bukuru and the Great Lakes Companion Diocese of Burundi for Bishop Seth and his family. We pray to you, O Lord, 